Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is part two of a two-part episode. If you haven't already listened to part one of episode 62, The Rosendale Murder, I strongly suggest that you do that first, otherwise you will be very confused. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, Featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders. All set within London's West End. Today's episode is the final part of a two-part special on Michael Barry Porter. A 23-year-old scaffolder brutally murdered at the notorious Rosendale Club. And although there was very little evidence, and not a single eyewitness could identify his killer, the police would bring a murderer to justice. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is is Murder Mile. Episode 62, The Rosendale Murder, Part 2. Today, I'm standing by the Regent's Canal in Haggerston, E8, two miles west of the Islington Tunnel, where the body of Sebastiano Magnanini was tied to a shopping trolley and dumped in a watery grave. Two miles west of Battlebridge Basin, where the hacked-up bits of Paula Fields were fished out by two boys. And barely a quarter of a mile east of Broadway Market, where bobbing along, in the stagnant water, were found the dismembered body parts of Jim and McCluskey. Coming soon to Murder Mile. That's three bodies in 16 bits, and all in one small stretch of the Regent's Canal, which is about average for this place. As recently, when the canal was drained, amongst the submerged detritus, like beer cans, old prams, mucky mags and fag packets, as well as pretentious trash, like hummus hampers, falafel wrappers, artisan breads in the shape of Marcel Proust's arsehole, 
and wanky wicker baskets full of gluten-free vegan pizzas made by hairy-handed, homeless-looking, bearded hipster yetis. Divers found a stash of guns, knives, grenades, an unexploded World War II bomb, and six open safes. But in 1971, the police weren't here to find a corpse. They were here to find a killer. Strangely, not one single eyewitness had uttered his name. But Detective Chief Inspector William Peel and his murder squad detectives were close to capturing a known felon who had murdered Mickey Porter. As it was here, on the Regent's Canal in Haggerston, on the 25th of October 1971, the police uncovered a key piece of evidence which brought a killer to justice. This was an incredibly complicated case, expertly handled by the police, but made even more difficult by the vagueness and the lies of some witness statements. So let's recap on what the police knew for certain. On Sunday the 26th of September 1971, at 12.57am, in the Rosendale Club at number 9 Newport Place, Michael Barry Porter, known to his pals as Mickey, was stabbed in the back with a single-bladed knife, shot three times in the neck, back and groin with a .22 caliber pistol and died at the bottom of the stairwell. Consisting of a small single room on one floor, the Rosendale Club was 40 feet long by 15 feet wide, six feet at its thinnest. It was all open plan, with seating on the outside and no hidden corners, columns or booths. The lighting was dim, the music was loud, and last orders had been called. Standing in the corner, near the kitchen, it started as a fight between four men. Two were six feet tall, two were five foot eight, one wore a maroon velvet jacket, one a light beige sweater, one a white flowered shirt, and one was Mickey. With two women, a streaked blonde and a redhead stood nearby. For whatever reason, Mickey slashed a pale man in a maroon jacket across the left cheek with a broken glass. In retaliation, Mickey was stabbed once, slashed once, and shot three times. Once by the kitchen, once by the first floor landing, and twice down the stairs. Bloodstains and shell casings corroborate this, as well as two .22 caliber bullet fragments which nicked the thumb of Albert Griffiths the club's co-owner. Mickey Porter died at the scene and his unidentified assailant fled, leaving a trail of blood. Forensics teams found three distinct blood groups, type O, type A positive and type A negative on the walls, door, floor and stairwell. And yet, having bled profusely, Only the type A positive blood was found on the pavement outside numbers 9, 7 and 3, Newport Place. And Mickey Porter was type O. At the time of the murder, there were roughly 35 patrons and 4 staff on the first floor, with no one in the second floor club above or the ground floor shop below. With the only access being via Newport Place, 
everyone entered via the black street door, which even when the club was open, the door was always locked, with a single set of keys held by Albert Griffiths. And as a private members club, with everyone having been personally vetted by Albert, all 35 patrons either arrived as couples or larger groups. There were no singles or strangers, and although everyone had to sign in, some didn't, some weren't members, and some gave false names. Of those 40 witnesses, some fled, some stayed, and others gave statements which were either vague, wrong, or untrue. No knife, no gun, and no culprit was found. And no one, in any of those 300-plus statements by eyewitnesses, identified the killer. But why? Through experience, the police knew that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable, as although memory is only 30% accurate, the human eye sees less than 5% of what is in its field of vision, with the remainder interpreted by the brain, and the same can be said for the rest of our senses. Witnesses may see things in different ways. For example, blonde hair may be fair, white, light, mousy or auburn, based on the brightness or the colour of the lights. A person may be 5 foot 8, 5 foot 10 or 6 feet tall, but without a tape measure, we can't be accurate, opting instead for a best guess, based on who they're standing near. And a maroon velvet jacket could just as easily be a red blazer, a burgundy cardigan, or a dark top, based entirely on the wealth or limits of a witness's vocabulary. These different depictions could describe the same person, or someone entirely different. So having witnessed a shocking event in near-dark conditions for a split second and being asked to recall it hours, days or even weeks later, it's not surprising that so many eyewitness statements were either vague, confused or wrong. And yet, some witnesses deliberately gave false statements. Through the dogged determination of Detective Chief Inspector Peel and his fastidious murder squad detectives, by painstakingly double-checking even the tiniest detail, re-interviewing each witness and cross-referencing each statement, they wheedled out the truth from the lies. And in an utterly baffling and truly complicated case, their persistence paid off and a killer was caught. The police quickly ruled out the following witnesses. The staff, comprised of Albert, who was on the door, Sarah, who was serving sandwiches, Denise, who was behind the bar, and Marcia, the waitress, as well as other innocent bystanders, such as Dave the Tout, Lenny Fields, Lou the Jew, Dancing Charlie, Scotch Bobby, Little Ted, Carol and Monica, Kerry Lane the pianist, Playboy Roy, his wife Coral, their friend Iris, his brother Terry, and Terry's wife Carol, as well as Mr. and Mrs. Harwood, Peter Goody, Jackie Hunt, Susan Cash, and Peter and Sheila Kennedy. John Riley's statements were proved to be an honest account of the night, and excluding the minor argument he had with his brother Matt 
outside in Newport Place. It was proved that he was stood with his sister-in-law Marilyn by the bar at the farthest point from the incident itself, which left the police with eight viable suspects, all but one of whom had prior criminal convictions, all of whom lied or misled the police, and some of whom had refused to give statements. They were Matt Riley, John and Ann Kavanagh, Charlie Snooks, Ian Duran, Terry Hayes, Barbara Alley, and June Lawrence. So who had lied, and why? Having driven to the club in a red Wolsey, Mickey's friends, John and Ann Kavanagh, and Charlie Snooks, initially stated, We did not go to a club called night. the Rosendale. Nor was my husband or Charlie. Never been to the Rosendale. I have never heard of the club before. I don't even know where it is. The problem was, having adhered to the rules of the club, in a leather-bound book just inside the door, all three had signed in as guests and members, using their real names. When reinvestigated by the police, they confirmed that I knew he was hurt, but I didn't know he I was I saw him lying on the stairs, mourning and groaning, and we got into the car, where we sat and watched. When asked why they'd lied, Charlie gave no excuse, neither did John, and Anne later said, I told lies before, as I didn't want to get involved. The Kavanaghs and Charlie Snooks were ruled out as suspects, as their actions, timings and location were corroborated by others in the club, and none of them fitted the descriptions of the four men and two women being sought by the police. But their statements did clarify the sighting of someone else. Matt Riley. Having initially refused to give a statement, Matt later said, I didn't see Mickey all night. In fact, I didn't even know he was there. A statement contradicted by five people, including his own brother, who said, I recognised a man called Mickey Porter, standing with Johnny Kavanagh and Anne, about four feet away. Later, although Matt denied seeing his pal Mickey bleeding to death on the stairs, I saw a man who I can't describe, lying face down on the floor. But his brother also contradicted this, saying, I saw Mickey Porter lying on the stairs. I saw his eyes were staring. Matt was with me. He said to his wife, come on, let's go. We stepped over Mickey and we left the club. And although, for whatever reason, he failed to tell the truth, with the police asking each witness to clarify what they were wearing that night. Six-foot-tall, fair-haired Matt said he wore a yellow flowered shirt, meaning that, of the four men, in the corner, by the kitchen, involved in the fight, Matt was one. So why did he lie? Nobody knows. What the police knew was that he was unarmed, uninjured, and involved. But whether the argument with his brother just moments earlier was related to the murder itself is unknown. Outside, not in front of your wife. Leave me alone. I can handle Stick with it. your family, not your friends. Others have suggested Matt was trying to broker a peace between Mickey Porter and his killer. Forget it. Have a drink. So as Matt doesn't match the description of either man, 
he was ruled out as a suspect. Which left the police with four viable suspects. Two men and two women. It was a process of simple elimination based on the facts given by both the witnesses and the suspects. Barbara Alley and June Lawrence were stood by the cigarette machine, barely three feet from the fight, the stabbing and the shooting. Both claimed, We went to the club by ourselves. We saw very little and left together. And that? We didn't know anyone else in the club. But the police knew that that was a lie. When questioned about the night, Barbara confirmed she wore a mauve jumper, a pink miniskirt and had blonde streaked hair. And June was a redhead wearing a white woolen jumper, blue hot pants and grey knee-length boots, which perfectly fit the description of the women seen fleeing the club, which left just two men. Both described as five foot eight and early twenties, one wore a light dog's tooth pattern shirt and what was described as a light beige sweater, and one was a pale man in a maroon velvet jacket who bled profusely from a stab wound to the left cheek, and both were missing. And although one of the wanted men signed into the member's book as Davies, which the police knew was not his real name, the other signed in as Terry Haynes, which was. And as a five-foot-eight, fair-haired, 18-year-old plumber's mate, who dressed in a snazzy yellow shirt with a dog's tooth pattern, Terry was also one of the four men. Which left the police with one viable suspect. But with Barbara and June unwilling to talk, Terry having fled, and the suspect's type A positive blood splattered inside the club, outside numbers 9, 7 and 3 Newport Place, on a broken wine glass which Mickey had used to slash open his left cheek, and on the clothing of the murder victim himself. As his name was barely mentioned in any witness statement, the police knew him only as Mr Jennings. Only his name wasn't Mr Jennings, or even Davies. It was Ian Duran. A 22-year-old 5'8", second-hand car dealer, dressed in a maroon velvet jacket, black trousers and polo neck, colours which accentuated his pale and profusely bleeding complexion, who had arrived and left with Terry Haynes, his cousin, Barbara Alley and June Lawrence, his half-sisters, and as a known felon who was dangerous, violent, easily riled and armed with a twenty-two calibre gun. Now he was on the run. So how was the killer caught and convicted? With no smoking gun, the murder squad detectives relied on the smallest of details, all cross-referenced and double-checked. Who was where, who wore what, and how could they prove it? What follows is the most accurate account of what happened that night. At 12.15am, On Sunday the 26th of September 1971, having parked up his black Ford Mustang in nearby Little Newport Street, Ian, Terry, Barbara and June 
entered the Rosendale Club at number 9 Newport Place, as witnessed by Albert. And although Ian signed in as Davies, the others signed in as themselves. It was an ordinary night, and the foursome were out for fun. But being described by the police as ruthless, paranoid and volatile, even on a nice night out, Ian was carrying a gun. As a child of below-average intelligence, Ian Duran was wild, angry and uncontrollable. Expelled from school once, sent to Borstal twice, and raised amongst a family of petty thieves, Ian was convicted of shoplifting aged 13, car theft aged 15, and burglary aged 16. With 11 convictions by the age of 23, including a firearms offence. For half of his life, he had been a criminal, and he was only 23. Unable to hold down a steady job, Ian dreamed of being an infamous gangster who was respected and feared. Living the fast life with snazzy clothes, sports cars, easy money, and armed with a 22 caliber Italian Beretta. It was pure coincidence that Mickey Porter and Ian Duran were both in the Rosendale that night. And as a tiny one-roomed club, with nowhere to hide, being too proud to leave and too arrogant to back down, it is believed that Matt unsuccessfully tried to broker a peace between the two fuming men. At 12.50am, with tempers rising, I can handle it and keen to keep his baby brother out of trouble. Stick with your family, not your friends. Matt and John Riley were ushered outside by Albert into Newport Place to settle their differences. But with the club's patrons distracted by the siblings' standoff, although June heard Mickey say to Ian, Forget it, have a drink. What happened during those crucial few moments will never be known. Was it sparked by a look a word or a mistimed nudge? Or, being drunk, angry and paranoid, did Ian Duran simply misinterpret the well-meaning offer of a friendly drink from Mickey Porter? A man who many described as a flash git who rubbed people up the wrong way and had the scars to prove it. At 12.57am, with the last drink served, the pianist wrapping up, the patrons picking up their coats and Sarah serving the final sarnies. From across the bar, Mickey Porter dashed, broken glass in hand, yelling, You can have it now, you c**t! His scream muffled by loud music, hubbub and hijinks. Clutching the sharp shard in his balled up fist, Mickey slashed Ian across the left cheek, missing his eye by half an inch, and cutting to the bone, he split open a two-inch gash which bled a rapid stream of type A, rhesus-positive blood, down Ian's pale face onto his maroon velvet jacket. Situated in a tight dark corner, farthest from the bar and the piano, where, singing the last song, most eyes were facing, much of the action was obscured by Mickey's back, but seen in full by Barbara and June. Seething at his assailant, from his waistband, Ian pulled a loaded 22 caliber Italian Beretta, wildly fired off an unaimed single shot from hip height 
hitting Mickey to the left of his groin, splitting his pelvis and embedding the bullet in his left thigh as the crotch of his fawn corduroy trousers ran red. And as the spent 22 caliber shell ejected, landing underneath a nearby stool, although the hubbub in the busy club slowly subdued, with the bang being muffled by sweaty bodies and soft furnishings, most witnesses were unsure what they actually heard, whether a firework, a cap gun, or a champagne cork. Shot once, still standing, with the pain masked by 13 whiskies, and a bloodied and furious Ian Duran raising his beretta once more, Mickey Porter tried to flee, but his path was blocked by Terry Haynes. Terry would state, I saw a man charging at me with a broken glass in his hand. It was Porter. He was like a wild man. I had a penknife in my pocket. I opened it up, pushed my arm out and ducked my head. Implying it was self-defence. Except the autopsy proved different. As not only did Mickey have a one-inch defensive wound to his right middle finger, but having been stabbed in the back, not the stomach or the chest, it's more than likely that Mickey was stabbed by Terry as he turned or ran away. Seeing Mickey flee, Ian fired again. Caring not a jot if he shot an innocent, as the second bullet narrowly missed his half-sisters, Barbara and June, and his cousin Terry. But as Mickey fled via the first floor door, a small hole ripped open in his back, fracturing his eighth rib, splitting the bullet into several lethally sharp projectiles. One tore through his right lung, one split open his stomach, and two exited Mickey's torso, embedding at the base of Albert's thumb, ejecting a shell casing by the door and spraying the multicolored wall and door with two types of blood, type A rhesus negative and type O. As Mickey staggered downstairs, his pelvis shattered, his lung collapsed and his chest full of blood, Ian fired again, but missed. And as a third shell ejected onto the ninth step, being a few inches from freedom, as Mickey desperately yanked the handle, he found that the black front door wouldn't budge, as it was locked. Seeing he was trapped, the last thing Mickey saw was Ian Duran, thundering downstairs, his pale face bloody, his eyes wild, a loaded Beretta outstretched. As with a loud bang and a muzzle flash, a bullet ripped through his neck, his esophagus, and embedded at the base of his heart. Mickey collapsed on the spot, a fourth shell by his head, and the wall splattered with type A positive blood and type O. As the petrified patrons feared for their lives, Lewin locked the door, and amongst a sea of sweating bodies, Ian Duran fled, swiftly followed by Terry, Barbara and June. The bulk of the eyewitnesses, too confused, shocked or terrified, to accurately recall what they had seen. And in the panic, a killer escaped. But Detective Chief Inspector William Peel and his murder squad detectives would find him. 
Dashing down Newport Place, Ian profusely bled his type A rhesus positive blood along the pavement outside numbers 9, 7 and 3, and having parked up in Little Newport Street at the back of Leicester Square, he dived into his black Ford Mustang, Terry in the front seat, Barbara and June in the back, as witnessed by Charles Harwood, who exclaimed to his wife Winifred, Look at that man sitting there in his car with his face all bleeding. How can he drive like that, with a handkerchief to his face? As the car sped away, Barbara saw Terry wiping blood off a knife with a hanky, which she described as a small single-edged blade with a coat of arms on it, the kind you would buy at a seaside town. The police were on the lookout for a left-hand drive black Ford Mustang, and all hospitals for a man in a maroon jacket cut across the left cheek, a man in a dog's tooth shirt, a streaked blonde, and a red-headed woman. Insisting that all evidence be destroyed, Ian dropped Terry off in King's Cross, told him to destroy a stash of bullets at his home, and fearing Ian's wrath, Terry did as Ian demanded, and disappeared. Safely ensconced at Barbara's mum's house at Gospel Street in Haggerston, Ian tried to lay low, but rapidly losing blood. Barbara said, I thought he was dying. So with his getaway car hidden, I dragged him over to the van and put him in. I was frightened. I wanted him to go to the hospital. Driven to nearby St. Leonard's Hospital in a tiny, dilapidated Ford Thames van, barely big enough for two people, having falsely claimed to be Mr. Jennings. At 2.14am, Dr. Mark O'Keck tended to the V-shaped wound on Ian's left cheek. Having dressed it, stitched it, and removed all the glass fragments, with Ian being aggressive and Barbara clearly very nervous, having taken a sample of Ian's blood to test for infection, Dr. O'Keck handed the small vial of blood to the police. But having discharged himself, a few hours later, Ian Duran had vanished. At his command, all of the evidence was destroyed. June scrubbed away the bloodstains at 40 Gospel Street. Ian's brother Stephen sold the black Ford Mustang. And Barbara slung the maroon velvet jacket into a bin at Dunstan Road, with a black 22 caliber Italian Beretta dumped in the Regent's Canal. Ian was gone. Terry was gone. The evidence was gone. But fear can be a powerful motivator. It can make people do stupid and highly illegal things. It can cause people to lie to the police. But when their lives are threatened, it can also make liars tell the truth. On Monday the 27th of September 1971, the day after Ian had vanished, Barbara handed an envelope to her trusted pal, Teresa Bromley. It contained two front door keys, insurance details for a Ford Mustang, a driving license in the name of Frank Richard Huggett, an alias of Ian Duran. And although Teresa never asked why, Barbara said, If anything should happen to me, hand these to the police. To which Teresa said, Okay, uh, see you tomorrow. And Barbara nervously stuttered, 
Yes, if I haven't been shot. On the 7th of October 1971, having been interrogated twice, Barbara Alley and June Lawrence were arrested and charged with impeding the arrest of a wanted man. Even though June had scrubbed the living room with bleach, forensics teams found a large quantity of dried type A rhesus-positive blood, an incredibly rare group, which matched the heavy bloodstains in the Ford Mustang, now traced to a new owner, the Ford Thames van, found stripped and dumped by the region's canal, and the vial marked Mr Jennings, taken at the St Leonard's Hospital, as well as outside of numbers 9, 7 and 3 Newport Place, inside the Rosendale Club, and on the clothing of murder victim Mickey Porter. Although Ian's maroon velvet jacket was never found, after 21 days of searching a short stretch of the Regent's Canal between Kingsland Road and Haggerston Road, police divers found two revolvers, 16 rounds of 45 caliber bullets, one 12 bore shotgun, and one Italian made 22 caliber Beretta pistol, wrapped, as Barbara described, in a white and blue cloth, with only two live rounds left in its six-shot clip. With enough evidence to convict, all that were missing were the culprits, Ian Duran and Terry Haynes. After a week of hiding out in Wellingborough, with a man's murder weighing heavy on the boy's mind, on the 2nd of October 1971, at 11.55pm, 18-year-old Terry Haynes handed himself in to Detective Inspector Peel. He made a full confession, admitted the knife had been destroyed, and having found a single drop of Mickey Porter's blood on his left shoe, the only detail Terry refused to give was one the police already knew. The name of Mickey's killer. On the 20th of December 1971, Ian Duran was arrested by Glasgow police as part of a four-man team who robbed several banks, supposedly to fund an extreme left-wing group. Except most of the cash, Ian splashed out on living the high life as a wannabe gangster. And as predicted, described by the police as ruthless, paranoid and volatile, during one robbery, a masked assailant fired a loaded shotgun, narrowly missing an innocent bystander. Ian Duran was found guilty at Glasgow High Court on the 20th of April 1972 and was sentenced to 25 years for armed robbery. On the 12th of April 1972, police took a sample of his Type A rhesus positive blood and when Detective Chief Inspector Peel charged Ian Duran with murder, when he asked him why he did it, Ian Duran cockily stated, Yeah, I did it. You all know about it. That's why I had to leave London. Tried at the Old Bailey, Barbara Alley, June Lawrence and Stephen Duran were found guilty of impeding the apprehension of a man wanted for murder and were sentenced to three years probation. Terry Haynes was found guilty of unlawful wounding and given a two-year conditional discharge. And having pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of provocation, Ian Duran was sentenced to an additional 10 years and three months in Wormwood Scrubs Prison. 
His sentence would have expired in 2007. He died in 2003, aged 54. The murder of Mickey Porter in the Rosendale Club was a complicated case, made next to impossible by a lack of prints, weapons, motive or credible witnesses. And yet, it was solved by the fastidious work of Detective Chief Inspector Peel and his murder squad detectives, who relied not on big clues, but thousands of tiny ones, which may have seemed insignificant, but they led to the arrest of a killer. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And don't forget, if you're a murky miler, to stay tuned after the break for more goodies. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Simon Lewis and Vicky with two eyes. And a thank you to everyone who has been on my Murder Mile walk recently. It's lovely to meet listeners in person and to get a chance to show you murder sites which you will only ever hear about on the podcast or on the tour. Murder Mile was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, as before, this is going to be the original Extra Mile, as recorded back in April 2019. Uh, it's now June 2019 at the moment uh, the reason why i played these <clears throat> reason why i'm going to be playing you this extra mile is because it gives you all the original context and everything that you wanted from this episode this kind of clears up a lot of um a lot of the bits and pieces that were missing in the episode and things that need clarifying so uh this is going to be the original extra mile it's really interesting it's really good uh but it may contain a couple of things that have changed since because you know me i have a tendency to change my mind uh Anyway, this is the original Extra Mile for this episode. Enjoy it. Oh. 
It's extra mile time, it's extra mile time. La 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 la, just gonna open up all the windows. Need to get some fresh air in. Oh, that was a hot one. That was a hot one, that was a tiring one, folks. Hang on. Gonna unlock the windows, unlock the doors. There we go, oh, fresh air, that's nice. Oh, it's a hot day today. It's 28, 27, 28 degrees today. It's a bit hot uh, and I'm inside here. Everyone's outside having fun. On a couple of tea, bit of tea. Uh, everyone's outside having fun, having a walk, walk along the towpath. Me, I'm inside record, recording episode 59. Ah, joy, just getting the tea on. Oh. Anybody want one? Do you want one? Call in now. Call in now and I'll do you a tea. Maureen. Uh, pop that in there, gonna have a cup of tea. I'm gonna have a, a Welsh tea today. Thank you, Vicky, for the Welsh tea. That's gonna go in. Are they bite? Are they bite? What's that do then? Um, I've got some biscuits. This might be my last day of biscuits. I'm gonna try and be good for a bit. So, here I am, I'm coming back. Oh, dear Lord, that was tiring. So, whew, that was your final two-parter of, uh, uh, switch off some lights. Don't need them now, because I've got all my windows open. There we go. Oh, that was part four. Part two of the uh, Rosendale murder, uh, episode 59. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, this is the week Easter weekend. I was about to say Easter weekend. It's the Easter weekend. Uh, this is the Monday, the Bank Holiday Monday. Hope you've all had a nice one. Obviously, uh, I don't know whether everyone has Easter all over the world. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, no Easter eggs for me today. Just Just recording this. Uh, but I did go out for a nice walk in, I think it was Wallingford in Oxfordshire on Friday. That was over in the Chilterns. That was very nice. It was a nice warm day. So we headed out there. That was uh, me, Andrew, Carl, Ummy and uh, DS. Had a nice, nice trip out in DS's Bentley. That was very lovely. That was very nice. Uh, and we went in search of Jeremy Irons' house because apparently Jeremy Irons lived there. And we didn't know quite know where he lived. So we kept looking at houses going, is that Jeremy Irons' house? It looks like, like you have to try and imagine what Jeremy Irons' house would look like. And I was like, well, it's going to be nice, isn't it? It's going to be a nice posh one. Uh, and and a, bit, a bit remote. But uh, no, I, I think I found it later on. But he's, he's on a road with three pubs. What a legend. So, yeah, no, we had a nice walk. Um, and then we had a couple of pints at the end. Oh, that was very nice. Uh, yes, and then I came back and uh, I couldn't do a walk on Sunday because I slight, slightly bulged up my back. Uh, but I spent the rest of the time writing this episode, which was a bloody nightmare. I'm going to tell you that right now. It was a bloody nightmare. First episode was quite easy. That kind of episode one for this, where it was, do you know, I was like, what I tried to do, because it was a complicated case, I thought, well, I'll show you how complicated it is for the police. How What they're kind of, they see a scene and what, what it looks like and what it might be, what it might not be. And I thought, well, I'll do that as episode one. But what I'll do is I won't show you how truly complicated the scene is what i'll try and do is write a, a relatively easy episode for you and streamlining out all the complexity of it to try and make it make you think oh what really happened there and who was who and who was what but really you know it, last episode was a bit of a pain by numbers really but and then what i thought was i will see originally this was going to be a, a three-parter i thought oh there's enough information here to make a three-parter but as I started writing it, I thought, oh my God, this is a complete head F. It's a head F. My brain is hurting too much. 
because uh, so it was going to be episode one, which is about the crime scene, what the crime scene looks like. Episode two was going to be the police investigation. Ep three was going to be the hunt for Ian Duran. And I thought that would be really interesting. But then what I started realising is this is quite a, a difficult case uh, from what I normally do. Because you know what I normally do. I normally get an episode. I normally find a character. And then whether it is the killer or whether it is the, the actual victim themselves, depending on their circumstances, I try and get you into their world and then uh, um, make you appreciate these, these people and sympathise with them. And then you follow a nice, simple, single story. But this has got multiple characters, multiple perspectives. Um, and also, it was really difficult because none of the characters you can sympathise with. It's and this is what I really struggled with. Like, I started to... I, I've written this episode about five or six times now. And I've had to keep restarting. First time... Uh, how did I start? I think I, I tried to do it from Mickey's perspective. Because you would do. Because he's the victim. He's been shot. But Mickey's... He's, you know, he's described by most people as a bit flash, a bit of a git. He robs people up the wrong way. Do you know, he's, do you know, he's not particularly sympathetic. There's nothing about it that made me go, oh, I feel sorry that he's dead. Do you know, he was dead. Do you know, I added in some stuff earlier on about his, about that his mum had to go and find him. But even with that, it's still like it was a bit near. So uh, then I thought, let's try and write it from maybe Ian's perspective, Ian Duran. Do you know, I, I, I'll go through some details later on his biog. I thought, let's do what I sometimes do, which is you do a biog of his history. Kettle's about to go. Oh. What was that? Some, sorry, something fell out then. Oh, not out of me. Uh, there we go. I thought the microphone fell out of the laptop. Which wouldn't be good halfway through a recording. No, so um, so I, I did a lot of research on Ian Duran's background, uh, and I thought it might be interesting to kind of do it as a kind of because um, no one starts out as a criminal. You don't wake up in the morning as a but you're you're not born as a baby. You pop out of your mummy's tum tum and you go. You know what? I'm going to be a criminal. It kind of you know it, it is the whole nature nurture thing. Do you know um, his family. Uh, his father was a criminal record. Uh, I didn't know much about his mum. Uh, his his half sisters and his brother have criminal records. You know, they're all, but all, it's all petty thievery, really. So, uh, and I was looking into his life and thinking, you know, just uh, working class family, kind of go that angle. But even with that, I just really couldn't sympathise with him at all. I thought I really don't give a shit at all about his life. He's just, he's a wannabe gangster and he's a bit pathetic. So then I thought maybe write it about Albert's story. So I wrote it as Albert's story. Albert, who owns the club, do you know, interesting story. He kind of, you know, he had a bit of a small criminal background. But for 10 years he'd been clean. He decided to try and turn a club which was failing and had a bad reputation and turn it into a nicer establishment. He'd just opened it up. He'd got his family involved in it. Do you know, he seems like a decent enough bloke. I, th I tried to write it from his, his perspective. That didn't work. I then rewrote it as Barbara's story. Because Barbara was kind of tagged along with Ian as the half-sister. And she was the one who, uh, you remember that she handed in, uh, she was afraid of him. She handed in uh, his, his keys to his flat, insurance details for the car, and his fake driving licence as well, the, the one that he'd stolen. Uh, and she was the one who had to, had to hide the gun and the jacket as well. And I thought, that's quite an interesting story. There were some interesting details there. But even with that, I couldn't make her sympathetic enough. Again, it was just... A real nightmare so uh, I went away on a nice long walk 
to try and rethink this case really carefully and then I decided oh do you know what I've never done before I've never told the police's story and even though we don't we're not introduced to exactly who uh, Detective Chief Inspector Peel is I thought it was interesting just 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 to show you how they actually solved it because for me reading this case file was a nightmare it was huge and it was complicated and it was really doing my head in but you could see how the police were taking apart tiny tiny details like literally the difference between a yellow top and a white top or you know someone being five foot ten and five foot eight or you know ages difference and, and literally it was a small room and trying to work out who was standing where at what point and cross-referencing all these other statements so you could and it was interesting the more you go through it the more you could pick up a statement and go right albert's statement Albert is a very factual person. He tells it exactly like it is, exactly like Lou. Their statements, er everything matches, and it matches a lot of the truth of the other people's statements. Whereas you started getting statements from Ian or Barbara or June or, you know, you could tell that they were lying right off. So, it, so they were really good statements. Uh, so it made for a really difficult episode to write, but hopefully you enjoyed it. It's something different. Uh, it's probably not something I will do again, uh, depending on the case, because it was really, really tiring. It really was a nightmare to try and write. I, literally, I've been going through and writing it and then having to cross-check everything on all of my different sheets going, hang on, hang on, Ian was what height? Hang on, what colour? Oh, it's literally just like that all the time. And then because there's so many, because there's so many people, like one person wearing a yellow top and one person wearing a white top. And, you know... Um, uh terry haynes was wearing like a yellow shirt but a white jumper and people were saying he was wearing a white top some people were saying a yellow top he was wearing both but no one differentiates that so it's it, it makes for a really hard case and you can see how hard it is for the police Whew, cup of tea lovely i'm looking forward to slurping that i'm gonna slurp that really loud very shortly so get ready uh, so uh, I thought I'd throw in some extra details about uh, Ian Porter because we don't. Oh, Ian! I've written Ian Porter here. What an idiot! Ian Duran. Ian Duran. Mickey Porter was the was the victim, but this is uh, Ian Duran. So Ian Duran. So I mentioned he'd got some uh, prior criminal convictions in there. So, uh, but they're all relatively minor. So uh, his first conviction was when he was about thirteen years old. He stole some trainers from Woolworths. He was given one year's probation. Uh, a week after that, even though he was on probation, a week, uh, no, two weeks after that, he was caught stealing 70 packets of shampoo and 12 packets of fruit squash. And he was fined £10. Two years after that, he was stealing a parcel, parcel, parcel of records. A, I can't talk. A parcel of uh, records from British Transport. He was given probation for two years and two pounds costs. And he was bound over for a year, which doesn't seem to be doing a lot at the moment. They've already, uh, they've already got him on probation and he was bound over. And uh, a couple of months later, he was charged with larceny of a vehicle, which is basically car theft. He was fined £10. The year after that... Uh, uh, he was caught housebreaking. That was when he was about 15 or 16. So instead of just fining him, uh, what they did, they sent him to Chafford Approved School, which is basically a borstal. Borstal is a place you do not want to go. It's like ba it's like baby prison. If you've ever seen the film Scum, yeah, Jesus Christ. 1966, uh, loitering with intent to steal cars. He was given three years probation. 
967 loitering with intent again to steal cars three years probation probation does not seem to be doing much and neither does fines 1968 stealing parcels worth 500 pounds which is a lot in 1968 from british rail again he was sent to borstal for training that didn't seem to do a lot uh same year uh housebreaking with intent and receiving uh stolen car accessories uh that was that was a, a double case and it was at that point he was sent to borsal he was released from borsal in 1969 uh the year after that was when he was charged with possession of a loaded air weapon in a public place uh he was given a conditional discharge for 12 years that was the offense of the phoenix club uh 1970 uh handling a stolen motor vehicle he was fined 50 pounds and then, obviously, is the, uh, the, uh, uh, you've obviously got the murder, but then, because he wasn't, he was charged with that afterwards, in March 1973 at Glasgow High Court, as mentioned, he was charged with five counts, uh, so it was assault, <coughs> assault to the danger of life and robbery, assault and robbery, that was three charges, assault, Theft of motor vehicles, that's six charges, and contravention of the fire alarm, firearms offence. Uh, so of the, those first charges, he was charged, of those first offences, he was charged with 25 years in prison. And the final five charges, he was given an extra three years to be served concurrently. Whew, that was a lot. Uh, I've got some details here about what he did as, did as a job. Do you know, he worked for a couple of years as a van boy uh, over on Wolfdale Road in King's Cross. He was dismissed for bad timekeeping. He worked as a labourer for a bit on St John's Way. That's over in uh, N19. That's North London. Uh, he left with his own accord. Um, he tried to work as a, a, a self-employed painter for a bit. That's what he says he was, but he didn't really work. At that point, he was released from Borstal. Uh, and then he decided to work for his car, uh, for his dad, with a, for a little while, working as a, a second-hand car dealer. But this didn't work because he, he basically wanted a lot of money and he didn't want to have to do a lot of work for it, which is what criminals do. They don't like hard work. Um, so, uh, the Ford Mustang. This was the car that, that was mentioned in there. You remember in the first first uh, episode there were three cars. There was the, uh, the red... Woolsey, uh, the white mini clubman, and there was another one as well. I can't remember what it was now. They, they, it, it turned out that even though the police photographed those cars, they didn't actually. Uh, uh, they, they kind of helped prove some of the story, but they weren't essential to the plot. The one that was important was the black Ford Mustang, which was actually parked on a road just to the side of Newport Place. Uh, it had been sold. Uh, it had been actually been uh, resprayed by that point, but the police still picked it up. It wasn't difficult to find. It was a, a U.S. import left-hand drive black Ford Mustang. It's 19, uh, 1970. That you know, there's not a lot of them on the road. There's not a lot of them on the road today, to be honest. Uh, when the police found it, there was blood staining on the driver's seat, left-hand side, uh, the carpet, the seat belt, and on the transmission, and on the driver's door, and on the steering wheel. And all of the blood matched Ian Duran. This is what made the case really difficult for me. As I was going through the file, uh, they kept saying, the blood matches Jennings. And I was like, who the fuck is Jennings? What is going on? Who is Jennings? It's like, because I hadn't got to that point in the story yet. Because the file is a mess. It's all over the shop. And at the start, they kept saying Jennings, Jennings. So I'd write down Jennings. Then I'd go through a list of all the people in the club, and no one was called Jennings. I was like, who the hell is Jennings? And it was only later on did I find out who that Jennings is Ian Duran, which made it really, really annoying. 
Um, so uh, Monday the 4th of October 1971, Stephen Duran, who's Ian's brother, and William McPherson. I've removed William from this story because it complicates the, the matters, but William McPherson was involved, was one of the armed robbers uh, who Ian was involved in in Scotland, in Glasgow. He knew him anyway. They went to Nash Motors, a 47 High Road in Tottenham, where Ian had purchased the car uh, about a couple of... Uh, yeah about a month before for 850 quid and had, had attempted to sell it there for 600 henry thomas Hol- Hol- henry thomas holloway i can barely say those words henry thomas holloway uh sales manager was suspicious he said he needed to check the higher purchase information on the car and that they should return the next day holloway told his employer who contacted the police uh who told him uh that they were searching for that car that car uh, Holloway declined uh, to purchase the car, but police were able to keep tabs on it. The car was ultimately sold to R Bags Autos for 500 quid. Uh, and on Saturday, the 18th of October, police took ex- uh, possession of the car, examined it, and they found all the heavy bloodstains, which was great. Um, now, the police were obviously searching for Ian Duran by this point. They knew that he was a ruthless man. He had a, police, a complete disregard for other people. And the murder squad needed to track him down before anyone else was killed. As we saw with one of the uh, one of the bank robberies he did in Scotland, he had a loaded shotgun. Um, he didn't need to use it at all, but he uh, on two occasions uh, he discharged his shotgun in the bank. He didn't need to do that at all. And one time he he narrowly missed a bank teller with his gun. So he, he was a really dangerous man. Needed to be kept off the streets. Uh, the police knew that he had relatives on Caledonian Road. Caledonian Road is a road right at the back of uh, the Islington Tunnel where Sebastiano Magnanini was uh, was found uh, back at the back of King's Cross Station um, armed police searched various pro- uh, properties known to be associated with Ian Duran but there was no joy uh, they received information that he was associated with a series of armed robberies uh, and that he had connections to Glasgow these kind of little bits of information that were filtering in uh, on the 18th of October 1971, so about that's about three weeks after the murder, police discovered that Stephen Duran, his brother, had sold the car, uh, and they charged his brother with uh, <coughs> uh, helping his brother escape, who was obviously a wanted man. Um, Stephen Duran, Stephen Duran denied this. He admitted that he he had transported uh, Ian Duran in his car on two occasions after the murder. Um, but he, at this point, he even claimed that the Ford Mustang was his, which we know was entirely wrong. Um, what the police did was um, they questioned Ian Duran, they arrested him, and then they released him, and they deliberately shadowed him. Uh, Stephen Duran actually led him to uh, led the police to a small farmhouse. They actually don't say where the farmhouse is. Uh, I believe it was in Hertfordshire, if I remember correctly. Uh, but when they got there, Duran wasn't there. But there's evidence that he had been there at some point. Um. Uh, so, uh, well, obviously they they arrested Barbara and June. Uh, at that point, uh, not too long before years around that point. Oh, I'm confusing myself at this point. Uh, so when they went to uh, Forty Gospel Road, which was Barbara's mum's house, they took possession of a blood-stained 
cushion obviously she tried tried to clear up she hadn't done a very good job at all she'd done really bad if you look on my website or ho hopefully on social media i'll put all the crime scene photos on there and what they did was they moved basically a table with a phone on it and you can see it's just it's just dripping with blood she'd entirely missed that and it was i think it was a white wallpaper as well so either she was nervous and she hadn't done it properly or she, you know she's just just crap just crap at cleaning up blood uh, <laughs> um uh, on, the, on that same day, uh, Barbara Alley took the police to go and find the jacket, which was meant to be in a bin uh, on Dunstan Road. The flats just around the corner. That had gone. Obviously, this was like a couple of weeks later. So obviously, the, the bin men had come along. And she pointed out the location in the canal. Uh, she also took the police to Regent's Row. Now, I didn't put this in the story. I found this kind of interesting. But uh, obviously, because they'd got... Uh, oh, my ear's hurting. Oh, I've had earache for two days. Oh, that hurts! Um, obviously, they needed to get they needed to hide the black Ford Mustang because it's like a really obvious car. It's a left-hand drive American import uh, black Ford Mustang. It's like there's not a lot of them in the United Kingdom, especially in 1970. So they need to get it off the road. They hid it. Uh, they didn't actually hide it too well. They hid it in front of some garages. But unfortunately, a guy, and I haven't got his details here, I think his name is Arthur, uh, he couldn't, the the, the garages, uh, the car was blocking his garage, and he couldn't get his car out, so he notified the police um, and, and gave, like, all, all the details. Now, by that point, they'd moved the car elsewhere. Uh, Stephen Duran, his brother, had actually uh, sold it by that point, but they knew that's where the car was, roughly. They gave them a really good location. Um Barbara and Ian couldn't use that car because they needed to get rid of it to get him to the hospital. So they used the uh, Thames van. I've, sh I've put some pictures online. It is tiny. It is absolutely tiny. It's like a clown car. It's ridiculous. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to do a story about the escape and, and really go into details because it's just so ridiculous. But uh, um, I didn't feel that this episode really warranted three episodes. I thought two had pretty much covered it. Uh, so um, uh, she took him to the hospital. That was all fine. Uh, she came back. Uh, Barbara Alley uh, wanted to get rid of the jacket and the gun. She was she was nervous. She was trying to find a place to, to dump the gun. The van broke down on Regent's Row. Um <laughs> And when she went back to show the police where the van was, someone had entirely stripped it. Literally, they'd nicked it. I mean, uh, I mean that's, it's, it's hackney. What do you expect? Uh, someone had stripped it. There was no wheels. Parts of the engine had gone. The seats had gone. It was really badly damaged. There were no windows. But there was still blood on the bonnet of the car and on the floor in the offside driver's passenger seat, which is where Ian would have sat. And in the back, there were three bloody drags. Uh, do I need to say any more right here? Uh, there was a statement that Barbara made uh, about that night. I've used quite a lot of it. When she finally did give a more truthful statement, you know, we were able to use big sections of this for this story, and obviously it's cross-referenced with everyone else's story as well. Uh, she said they arrived at twelve at, at the club. They arrived at the, uh, the Rosendale Club at 12.15 that morning. They signed in a, the book. While they were in there, a man walked over to speak to Ian. Uh, and she said, Barbara said, I walked away and sat by June. The man was about 25 years old, taller than Ian, uh, light-coloured jumper and f uh, a fair curly hair. So it is believed that that is Matt Riley. Uh, I didn't hear what they were talking about. Then I heard a scuffle and then I heard some shots. 
Unfortunately, not tequila shots. Oh, that'd be nice, tequila shots. Uh, Ian and his cousin were in a car pulling away when they stopped and saw as we got in. Ian was holding his hand to his face. June said, get him to a hospital. His cousin, that's Terry, was wiping blood off a knife with a hanky. Uh, they dropped uh, Terry off in King's Cross so he could get rid of some bullets and other things. It just says other things. Uh, they drove to uh, my mum's house at 40 Gospel Road. Gopsall, it's Gopsall Road. It doesn't exist there anymore. It's been entirely demolished. Ian sat right by a phone and started calling. He started calling various people. I've abridged her statement. It's not all of it uh, he called his brother Stephen and said to get here with a nurse with a nurse or something uh, June was running about getting towels and things she says and things a lot that's why I've abbreviated this uh, to stem the bleeding Ian had flaked out and she thought he was dying uh, I dragged him over to the van and put him in as I was frightened and I wanted him to go to hospital I then took the, the gun which was wrapped up and the coat which was wrapped up in paper I drove round for half an hour. I was frightened. I drove near the canal and backed into a post and the van stopped. I got out. I walked from the van to Queensbridge Road and threw the, can and threw the gun in the canal. And I walked back into a big block of flats, which is at Dunstan Road, and threw the jacket in a big dustbin. So that was her. That was her part of her statement. It went on longer, but I, I didn't record all of it. Uh, obviously, there was a search for Terry Haynes. I was going to do this as a big section as well. Uh, but it, you know, you've got to get the tone right, and I didn't feel the tone. The kind of a, a, a slightly silly tone didn't really suit the story. So the search for Terry Haynes. Terry Haynes had been hiding in Wellingborough, which is in Hertfordshire, not the Northamptonshire one. Um, uh, he'd, he'd been there for uh, about a week and through a third party he let uh, Detective Chief, Chief Inspector Peel know that he wanted to give himself up which he did on the 2nd of October so that is uh, less than a week after the murder uh, and he made a full confession and was uh, well the, it says here he was charged with murder but he wasn't charged well he was initially charged with murder but then they got it down from GBH to unlawful wounding uh, Charles Stray, who was an old family friend who used to live near the Haynes family in London and stayed in touch with them, uh, Terry used to visit him very often. And he, uh, Charles said he felt very sorry for him because uh, Terry's parents had separated, so Charles would often take him in. On Monday, the 27th of September 1971, so that's the day after, uh, two days, well, basically one day after the murder, uh, Charles returned home. I won't say where his address was, in uh, Queensway in Wellingborough. Uh, uh, Haynes said he had a few days off work and Charles invited him to stay <coughs> and he stayed until the Friday Terry had no luggage he spent most of the time watching TV and didn't do very much he only had one set of clues on the Friday at 8.15am Charles took him to uh, the local train station <coughs> it was about a 20 minute visit they were waiting in the car uh, Terry Haynes turned and said Charlie I'm in some trouble I was... I was at that club where Porter was shot. Charles had been reading about the shooting in the papers that week. Uh, Terry said, I saw Porter go over and glass a fellow at the counter and then there was a general skirmish and some shooting and then I ran out. Terry's father had, Terry's father had been visited by uh, the police by that point. Charles advised him to get a solicitor uh, and to speak to the police. And at no time during his hiding did Terry have any visitors. And in fact, Charles actually said, I always found him a quiet and inoffensive lad. 
very nice, very nice. Uh, so um, Terry gave himself up. Um, when he was arrested, uh, Detective Chief Inspector Peel said to him, this was on Sunday the 3rd of October, said to him, I have reason to believe that you were with Ian Duran, your cousin, and two girls in the Rosendale Club on Sunday the 26th of September 1971 at about 1am, and that you and that you stabbed Michael Porter with a knife. He was also shot. The injuries his, he received caused his death. Do you wish to say anything about the incident? To which Terry Haynes said, what killed him? Uh, DCI Peel said, gunshot wounds. And that's because, obviously, it was the gunshot wounds that killed him and not the knife. Therefore, he couldn't be charged with murder. He could only really be charged with uh, uh, GBH, I think they tried to uh, have him done with. Uh, that's when he admitted, uh, I only had a pocket knife. When the trouble started, I was at the door with Al, Albert Griffiths. The bloke Porter had a broken glass in his hand. He had already glassed Ian Duran and he came tearing for me. I held a knife out in front of me to protect myself. Uh, initially, he said, I started a conversation with the manager, Al, at the door. We were talking about a car he was going to buy. I saw the bloke Porter with another fella I don't know, walking towards the corner where the kitchen is. The next thing I know, Porter had a broken glass in his hand and is waving it about. I saw somebody go on the floor. This is the, the extract that we used. Uh, then I heard a bang, not a loud one. I went on the floor. I crouched down near the door in case there was any other bullets flying about. The gun went off again. If you notice on here, he's not referencing that Ian is holding the gun. I saw a man charging towards the door. It was Porter. Uh, he was charging towards me still with a broken glass in his hand. He was like a wild man. I had a pen knife in my pocket. I opened it, pushed my arm out uh, with a knife and ducked at the same time. I want you to know that at that time, I didn't know that Porter or anyone else had been hit with a bullet. Porter pushed me. Uh, I knew I had tussled with him and gripped him round the waist. He ran through the door. Although there's no evidence that you actually gripped him round the waist. Because he didn't... Uh, Porter had been shot in the groin by that point, And there was no blood at groin height on uh, Terry Haynes. Uh, at this point, even though he was given a statement, you could tell that he was frightened. And he does mention that he's frightened of Ian Durand because he deliberately tries to not reference that. He, that He references that Ian Durand is there, but he deliberately tries to hide that reference. So um, Terry Haynes claimed that he saw a crowd of people on the street out after the murder. One of those was my cousin Ian, who I went into the club with, but I hadn't seen him since I was in the... Uh, but I hadn't seen him since he went in the club with me and brought me my first drink. I came out of the club and saw a man injured who was bleeding heavily from a cut to the head. The injured bloke, which is obviously Ian, his cousin, but he doesn't mention that at all. Um, I gave him a hanky and went over to his car. Two girls, who is his, uh, Ian's half-sisters, half who obviously will be related to Terry as well, um, two girls was behind us and we all got into the car together which is interesting why would you get into a car of a stranger who is bleeding the injured bloke drove off the knife was still in my pocket i pulled it out and wiped the blood off i got out of out of king's cross uh it was at this point that the police uh dci peel and uh ds dick who was uh, one of the lead investigators as well, said, who were the people in the car with you? And Haynes said, I don't want to mention that because I'm frightened. 
there's uh there's quite a few things in this story that i've deliberately taken out as well because it really was a long story and it's really confusing and it was confusing enough without uh adding in some extra people so when Ian Duran got to Barbara's house at 40 Gopsall Street in Haggerston, um, obviously he got on the phone and because he, uh, he was bleeding profusely, he didn't feel he could go to a hospital, but he needed a nurse. Uh, and there was a nurse who they kind of knew of who was uh, called Carmel Maguire. And she lived uh, not too far away in Hornsey Lane. <coughs> uh, um, now... Um, they got in touch with her she had turned up she wasn't really well i can't remember whether she turned up or whether she said she couldn't do anything but she he was bleeding profusely she couldn't do anything he needed to get to a hospital quickly um but police found out where she lived it was a large home uh over in hornsey which had been sublet into different rooms which she shared uh with a guy called michael Geraghty. When the police, armed police, uh, arrived at that location on the 21st of October 1971, they raided the property. In the room, they found a photo of Michael Geraghty and Ian Duran. And it appears that Ian Duran had stayed there for short periods of time after the murder. Michael Geraghty and Carmel Maguire, the nurse, was arrested. Uh, she was found innocent, but the police were able to use Carmel as a witness at the trial. So, after he was arrested for... Um, uh armed uh bank robberies brain's gone oh brain's gone it really has getting tired uh brain's gone uh oh I've repeated that brain's gone brain's gone kmart 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 uh uh on the 21st of december 1971 obviously uh the police arrested ian duran and ian duran was able to make a, st make a statement which i will read to you now i didn't really use it in the story because it kind of we'd already covered most of it but ian duran's statement was uh, on on Saturday night in September, I was with Terry, my cousin, and we met a couple of birds in the Phoenix Club. D those birds appear to be his half sisters. Uh, we had we had a drink and decided to go out west to have a drink in the Rosendale Club. We all went in my motor. We went to the club, went in, ordered a drink. A fella. A fella called me outside to the landing and told me that a geezer called Porter who had the needle to me was in the club. But if I kept quiet, boat going past, but if I kept quiet, uh, there wouldn't be any trouble. I told this fella, I don't know his name, but I knew I knew he was a friend of Mick Porter, oh, boat banging as the other boat went past, uh, that I didn't want trouble. I only wanted a drink. We went back into the club room. I was still talking to him by the fag machine when Porter jabbed me in the face with a glass. I went back, staggering. I had a small gun like a starting pistol in my pocket. Without thinking, I pulled it out and fired at Porter a few times. The next thing I remember is getting out of the club and I got into my motor, motor, and Terry with Terry and two girls. It's amazing that he mentions to boy, well, I mean, he's trying to keep them uh, out of the books, isn't it? But it's like, with two girls, but they're his half-sisters. Uh, we went to a place where the two girls looked after me and took me to the hospital. I remember waking up in hospital, so I discharged myself and cleared off. I don't want to say any more about this, except that if Porter hadn't come at me with the glass, there wouldn't have been a shooting. He had his shooter. Shoot, he came at me with a shooter. So you can even tell just by reading that. 
twaddle they use desperate to be a gangster oh, me want to be a gangster me is gangster in it uh prick uh so there we go <laughs> you can see why you can see why uh, i couldn't write it from his perspective because it's just like what a numpty uh anyway that is it <laughs> i hope you enjoyed that two-parter and the rosendale murder that was interesting i thought it would be i really thought that would be a a very very small uh story just about uh, one guy shooting another but it actually spiraled into something a lot bigger which is quite interesting uh so i hope you enjoyed that uh next week we're going to come back with a nice simple case i'm going to pick one i've got I've, I've researched loads but i'm going to pick one that is just nice and simple we'll go back to old style murder mile uh and what am i doing i'm off to asda now if it's open off to asda it's bank holiday monday it's probably shut i'm gonna make myself a curry nice curry there's loads of good asian places around here i'm I'm moored up in a place uh, and there's one road uh just around the corner which is like which is like it's like being in india it's fantastic it's like every 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 single shop is is basically saris and jewelry and kind of uh indian food shops and i love going in them because the smells are fantastic there's some really good foods but the problem is I'm, i'm one of these people where i like things spelled out to me and I, I I can go in there and look at th- stuff and go, oh, there's naan bread, there's poppadums, there's the lime pickle, and I get that. But then, because I'm looking for kind of a veggie substitute instead of meat to go with it, I don't really know what there is. So yesterday I walked in, I had a good shop around, and I bought nothing. So I'm going to get some curry stuff from over there, but I'm going to get my veggie stuff from from the Asdas. I'm going to go up the Asdas. Uh, and then I'm going to come back and then get edit this and then, uh, there might be some beers down the pub later on. I hope so. That'd be nice. Some cheeky beers. And then I'm going to move the boat tomorrow. Uh, be a nice day and then it gets shitty for the rest of the week. So that was exhausting. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that was murder mile and it was also extra mile. As you can tell, we're back on track. Uh, more murder, more murder mile single part episodes. I think I've got, I think I've got like ten or fifteen booked in now, uh, which I've researched. So they're booked in. Uh, we've got the multi part series at the end, which I'm still researching. Going to require a lot more work. Um, if we need to throw in a break, I will probably throw in some mini mile. I think because they're they're not too bad i could do those in about two and a half days which gives me a couple of days to kind of relax and do some research and uh, things like that but that's all good so end of the episode hope you all enjoyed it i'm still recording that's good uh hope you all enjoyed it and i will uh don't know how to end this hear from you soon see you soon etc you, you won't see me unless you're on my walks i won't see you unless you are on my walk uh, we won't hear each other unless you call me up. But do you know what? I, I rarely pick up my phone. Uh, you know I exist. I know you exist. That's all good. Uh, let's hope we exist next week. Uh, have a lovely day. Tatty bye. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.